continuing our study in the book of Matthew this morning. So if you will stand up for the reading of God's word, and this time I want you to read with me, will you? We are at that section, probably the most famous prayer in the whole entire universe. And so we're going to read this prayer together, but not from all of your various different Bible translations, okay? (laughs) We are going to read from the English Standard Version which is the version that I preach from. It's the version that's in your pew back, and it is the version that is in your bulletin this morning. So I will introduce uh, the prayer, and then we will pray together through verse 13, and then I will wrap it up with Jesus' commentary on the prayer. Pray then like this. You ready? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven, give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. You may be seated. Let us pray. Father, you've heard our prayer already. Now help us to understand what we just prayed. As we look to Christ's word this morning, would you help us to understand what he's talking about? Would you speak through your word and by your spirit give us a glimpse into the weight in the depth of what Jesus has shared with us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, over the the last couple of weeks, we together have, have seen that Jesus has begun to emphasize that those who are in His kingdom, what we call the kingdom of heaven, have God as their Father. And with God as our Father, that affects how we give, doesn't it? We saw that a couple weeks ago. It affects what our posture is in prayer, as we saw last week. We don't pray to be seen by others, right? Remember that? Our our righteousness is not measured by how good or holy we are compared to other people. Our righteousness comes from Jesus Christ. We live in Christ as children of the Father. And because we're His children... We don't feel the need to justify ourselves before others with public acts of worship. Our prayers are between us and the Father. It's not meant to be a display of piety. It's simply us talking to our Father. And at the same time, because God is our Father, we don't have to impress Him. Right? We saw that in the second part of of last week's passage. He's adopted us by His Grace, not by our merit. We have no need, nor can we impress Him. We're only children of the Father because Jesus Christ, at the command of the Father, went to the cross. And He satisfied the rightful wrath that God had toward us for our sinful rebellion against Him. 
Jesus paid our debt. But the gospel does not end with just that debt being paid. Not only is our debt paid, not only is the wrath of God satisfied in Christ, we've been brought near to God. We've been made His children. We've been adopted. That's really the summary of of all of chapter 6 and 7. We have been adopted. J.I. Packer, I don't know if you know him, he says that you could summarize the entire New Testament with these three words. Adoption through propitiation. It's a big word. Adoption through propitiation. So a lot's packed into that, but basically it's this. By the will of the Father, Jesus Christ has saved us so that we could be children of the Father. Our entire life is then to be lived in response to that reality, to that that truth. How we think about marriage, how we think about singleness and parenthood and work, how how we think about the church, how we think about prayer and singing and eating and drinking and birth and life and death and eternity, everything is impacted by the fact that God is your Father. If he's adopted you in. Christianity is not Christianity without that truth. We don't worship a distant and unknown all-powerful being. We worship our heavenly father. And because he's our father. We saw in the the second part of Jesus' teaching. We don't have to impress him. In Christ, he's adopted us. So rather than impressing God, our prayers are simply our way of speaking to him. Through prayer, we communicate to God, our Father, our dependence on him. True true Christian prayers, the prayers of the Father's children, are the prayers of spiritually weak and needy people. That's who we are. A spiritually weak and needy people. What did Jesus say at the very beginning of this sermon? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus takes that truth and he teaches teaches us what prayer looks like. He's going to give us this, this model prayer that many of us have memorized, that we've been reciting since we were little children. Before we get in, into this prayer too far, I, I want us to understand this about this prayer. This is not a magic prayer. This is not a code, some secret code. It's not a secret password or a secret knock that will cause God to hear us when we, when we say it or recite it. He hears you. Right? We should know by now, after what we've seen, that Jesus has taught us that there are not magic prayers. There's nothing we can say, nothing that makes our Father love us more than He already does. Nothing that causes him to hear us more than he already does. There's not some special order of our words. There's not something special you need to say. He hears us. He hears us because he's our father. And he's our father because of Jesus Christ's work for us. He hears us even when we don't know what to say or how to say it. You know this truth from Romans chapter 8? If you read Romans 8 last week, you saw this, Romans 8, 26. 
Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So even when you are fumbling through prayer, this is what this is not a justification, a justification for speaking in tongues. This is what this means. Even when you're fumbling through prayer, you don't know what to pray for. Even when you're distracted, when you're stuck, the Spirit will intercede for you and pray God's will into the situation that you're in. We don't know God's will. The Spirit does. The Spirit will pray that into your situation. So prayer is not, it's not a magic incantation. It's simply going to the Father with your hands empty and open. In prayer, we, we just go to the Father and say, I need you. I'm dependent on you. And so what Jesus gives here in Matthew 6 is a picture of, of the dependence the children have on the Father. And we're going to see that in a lot of different ways. He's showing us what our posture should be to our Father when we talk to Him. And he's giving us these different categories for, for things to think about as, as we, we go into prayer. Here's basically what we're going to see. We pray recognizing, first of all, that God is our Father. And that He is the eternal God. Those two things are true, and we have to understand when we approach God. Secondly, we pray in submission to His will. We pray in submission to God's will. And third, we pray in dependence on Him for everything we need, especially physical things. And fourth, we pray that we would live in light of our forgiveness. Right? So, Our question for you, are those the only things we can ever pray for? No, they're not. If God is our Father, we can ask Him for anything. We can ask Him for a job. We, we can ask Him for a wife or a husband or a child. We can ask Him to heal us when we're sick. We can ask Him to heal others. We can ask Him to give us wisdom. We can ask Him to, to help us in parenting or to help us in a tough situation. We can ask Him to humble us. We can ask Him to strengthen us. We can ask Him for wisdom. We can ask Him to make us more content. We can ask him for opportunities to share the gospel with others. This is an endless list of the things that we can bring to our Father. We can ask him anything. He is our Father. But what we're going to see in, in that this this morning is that prayer isn't just an ask, is it? It's not just a petition. It's worship, it is submission, it is dependence, and it is transformation. Those four things are things that we see happening in prayer. And we usually focus on that dependence part of prayer. Here's why I think we do this. I think we do that because when we go to God in dependence, it's recognizing that there is a little bit of our life that's outside of our control. And we think we have the rest covered. So we kind of ignore these other three things, and we focus on dependence, especially on physical things, because there's something we want and we're not getting it and everything else we have under our control and we're missing that one we don't have everything under control 
And we're missing that there is a whole world of darkness swirling around us, sometimes even in our hearts. And we're not aware enough of those things to bring that to God. So if that's your habit, if number three on this list is is your habit, and for many of us it is, I want you to pay careful attention this morning. Because Jesus is going to address each of these different areas. Dealing with the stuff that we can see is really just a quarter of the conversation we should be having with our Father. He, He cares for you so much. His desire to see you come to him is is deep. Let's look at each of these sections, and we'll just go verse by verse through the prayer. So first prayer is worship. We see this in verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. When we recognize that God is both our Father and our eternal God, we're worshiping him. That's what worship is. He's only our our Father through Christ's redeeming work on the cross. No one but those who have been adopted by the Father are at the privilege of calling Him Father. So this is not a universal prayer. Not everybody can pray this. Only those who have been adopted by the Father can call Him Father. This is an explicitly Christian prayer. Only the redeemed can pray this prayer. And when we say, our Father in heaven, we are summarizing all of the benefits of the gospel. The long version of that small phrase is this. God, you sent your Son to die in my place so that I could be reconciled to you, so that I could be adopted as your child, and so now I call you Father. Heavenly Father. That's packed into that. Our Father in heaven. He's our Father, and at the same time, He is the eternal God. God's nature doesn't change because He became our Father. He's still the Almighty Creator. He never changes. So when when we say, hallowed be your name, that's the old English way of saying, may your name be kept holy. May who you are be known throughout the entire Universe. Jesus is teaching us to ask God that his name would be holy, that his name would be honored or revered, not just in our lives, but in everyone's lives. It's that prayer that one day every knee will bow. We're asking God to make that happen. This is worship, isn't it? That is a statement of worship. Jesus is saying, though we approach God as his children, we still worship him as God. We recognize his holiness. If you're familiar with the story of Esther in the Old Testament, think of how Esther entered the throne room of King Ahasuerus. Esther's the queen. She's the favored queen. And yet she enters into the king's presence with humility, recognizing his power, recognizing his authority over her life. There's a worshipful reverence that she has when she goes into the throne room. And that's what we're to have. God is our Father. We can approach Him, but we do it with reverence. We do it in worship. Before we move on to the second section, there's something I want you to see here. I don't want you to miss the pronoun used at the very beginning of this prayer. Did you notice how Jesus said, Our Father? 
Look at that. Not just Father, but our Father. He uses the first person plural pronoun, ours. Because the Father isn't just yours. He's not just mine. He's ours together. In verse 11, he says to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Again, it's plural. Look at verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Verse 13, lead us, deliver us. You see all these plural pronouns? You see the word I in here anywhere? Or me? Jesus did not accidentally do that. What's he communicating here? What does he want us to see? He wants us to see that even when we're praying alone, we are to recognize that we don't belong to the Father alone. We belong to the Father as a redeemed people, as the church. A Christian does not exist as a child of the Father outside of the church. And I don't mean these four walls. I don't mean Del Cerro Baptist. Jesus didn't just die for this church. He died for the universal church. The everybody who ever has been and ever will be redeemed church. So when you were made new by the Holy Spirit, you were brought into the family of God, the church. And it is through local expressions of the church that we worship our Father and grow in Christ's likeness. There is not another way. There's no third way. There aren't Lone Ranger Christians. Just non-Christians. And Christians who belong to the body of Christ. Those are the two categories. Are you following what Jesus is doing here? Remember he said, when you pray, go into your room, shut the door. Prayer is a private matter. Right? This is you and your Father when you pray. The Spirit is in you. The Son is interceding for you. But when we pray, even as individuals, we're to recognize that we don't belong to ourselves. We died. We have died. It's not us anymore. We've been raised to new life in Christ. And in Christ, we are not alone. We are not autonomous. We're a part, a member of a body, of Christ's body. And so being a member of the body, a child in the family, what do we do? We submit to the Father. We submit to the Father. That's the second highlight here in Jesus' prayer. We pray in submission to his will. Verse 10 says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we pray for the coming of the Father's kingdom, and when we pray that his will would be done... We're praying that his rule would extend from heaven to cover the entire earth. That's our prayer. And when we pray that, who are we including in that prayer? Us. Because we live on the earth. (laughs) We're on the earth. So, So when we pray, let your will be done on the earth, we're praying, let your will be done in my city, let your will be done in my neighborhood, let your will be done on my street and in my house, and in my family, and in my life. That's a prayer of submission. Praying that we would submit to the Father's will. I think sometimes we we point out away from us when we think about prayer. Father, help them. Right? 
God, rule over them. God, show them that you're God, because I understand it. As if we don't need to be ruled over by God because we've got things sorted. We've got the right theology. We've got the right family. We've got the right education. We've got the right kids. The right retirement. Whatever it is. We have it sorted. We're sort of, when we think that way, we're falling into the trap of the Pharisees. You remember Luke 18? I don't know if you've read this before. It's another place where Jesus teaches us about prayer. So I think it's relevant here. Let me read it for you. Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. When we submit to the Father as our King, we are recognizing That like the tax collector, God has dominion over us. It's not just us on one side, God on another, and the world on the other. When we ask that God's kingdom would spread, that his will would be done on earth, we are asking God to conquer us. Be careful what you pray for. We're asking to conquer our marriages and our families and our attitudes and our kids and our habits. If God is ruling as king, we're going to be submitting to him. So I want us to pray for that. Jesus wants us to pray for that. That's a good prayer. Pray that our church would be totally conquered by the kingdom. That every person here would be submitting to Christ as king in every aspect of their lives. Do you see how this is a prayer of submission? It's worship, it's submission. The third section is dependence. We pray in dependence on our Father for everything we need. The way that Jesus illustrates this is in verse 11. Look what he says. Give us this day our daily bread. For Jesus' hearers... This would have conjured up the image of the exodus and the bread from heaven, the manna, the bread that they got every day. When the Israelites were redeemed out of slavery in Egypt, God fed them daily with this flaky stuff that settled onto the ground like dew. It was called manna. They were supposed to make bread out of it. They couldn't store it up. They couldn't save it for the next day. They had to use it every day. If they saved it, it would rot. It would get moldy. So every day, they were to rely on God's provision of daily bread. The only exception was the sixth day of the week, wasn't it? On the sixth day, God would provide enough bread for two days. But after that, after the Sabbath, the provision was back to daily, daily bread. So in providing for his people, God was showing them that he was first of all their caretaker. And secondly, he was teaching them to be totally dependent on him. 
They, they weren't to long for the days when their old masters provided for them. They were to be content with what God provided for them in the freedom that they had in Him. So when we ask God for, to give us our daily bread, we're recognizing He's our provider, that we're totally dependent on Him. One habit that I think is good that we have as Christians here in America is our, is our prayer before a meal. Even, even non-Christians sometimes will pray before a meal. It's a prayer of thanksgiving. It's a recognition our meal came from our provider and not from us. There's nothing in the Bible that says we have to do that. We, we do it because of Jesus' model, prayer. We, we do it recognizing that our prayer is to show dependence on him. And we also do it because Jesus prayed before his meals. You know that? So before he broke the bread and the fishes and fed the 5,000, he prayed. Before Jesus prayed at the Passover meal, what would be his last Passover meal? He prayed. Before he broke bread with his disciples, after the resurrection, on the, after the road to Emmaus, he goes and they go up to this room together and he prays before the meal. Even Christ is recognizing that we are dependent on the Father. We then are to live recognizing that everything we have has been given to us. No matter how successful you are, no matter how much we think we've earned what we have, no matter how much we think we deserve what we have, we need to see that what we have has been given to us, entrusted to us by the providential care of our Father. Now this last part is a little more difficult, but I think it's summarized best like this. We are to pray that we would live in light of our forgiveness. We're on to section four now. Pray that we would live in light of our forgiveness, which is to say we're to be transformed, changed. Changed by the forgiveness that we have in Christ. It's supposed to do something to us. It begins here in verse 12. Jesus says, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then, because that's not especially clear, uh, he, he gives us a commentary at the end of the prayer, verses 14 and 15. They, they kind of explain what he's just said. He says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Do you think he would be lightening up? But he actually adds more weight to what he said in verse 12. And on the surface, what does this sound like? I mean, you read it. This is what we do here. We read the Bible and we say, what does it mean? And we often take the plain, simple meaning. But the plain, simple meaning here is hard. It sounds like Jesus is saying that in order for us to be forgiven, both the necessary and the sufficient condition is that we must forgive others. Our Father will forgive us if and only if we forgive others. Now, is that true? Are we forgiven by God on the basis of our willingness to forgive others? I want you to just pause for a moment. Think about that. Are we forgiven by God on the basis of our willingness to forgive others? Did God forgive you because you were a forgiving person? 
The answer is no. We studied this in Colossians, didn't we? Colossians 2, 13-15 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Let's keep going. Hebrews 9.22 Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So what is the basis? What are the grounds for our forgiveness? It's the cross. Christ's death on the cross is the grounds for our forgiveness. He has canceled the record of debt that stood against us. Romans 5.9 We are justified, we're made right, we're made even, we're forgiven. No debt. We are justified by Christ's blood. Faith in Christ's work on the cross. Listen, faith in Christ's work on the cross is enough to warrant our forgiveness. Okay? You don't need to do anything else but believe that Christ's work is sufficient. His work is sufficient. We know that, right? But then we look at this and, Jesus, you're throwing me off. Here's the connection, okay? The Bible's not contradicting itself. Here's the connection between what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 and the rest of the New Testament, like the whole rest of the New Testament. Having been forgiven, there will be evidence in our lives of that reality. And I don't mean this. I don't mean some Christians have this evidence and some do not. All true Christians will have the evidence of having been forgiven. And do you know what that evidence is? A willingness to forgive. If you have been forgiven, that is, if the atoning justifying work of Jesus Christ on the cross has been applied to your life, you will exhibit a willingness to forgive. And I don't just mean saying, I forgive you. Right? Kids, you're good at that. I love you. But you're good at that. <laughs> to forgive means to give up the right to punish someone. To give up the right to punish someone for a wrong that they've done to you. We have all sorts of ways of punishing people. We've got, we are like the, the tormentors. We have a closet full of ways to punish people in our hearts. We can be violent with them, right? And that includes verbal, that includes physical violence. When we feel like we have the right to lash out at someone because they've wronged us, forgiveness is giving up that right. And giving up that desire. We can also be passive in our punishment, can't we? If you ever feel like never speaking to someone again, and that is your way of penalizing them for their sin against you, forgiveness is giving up the right to punish them with the silent treatment. Forgiveness is giving up the right to be sarcastic with someone who's hurt you. It's giving up the right to pretend that they don't exist. It's giving up the right to gossip about them. When you forgive someone, 
all of your means of punishing them, no matter how small they are, all of them go away. It's like a drunk pouring his last bottle of vodka down the drain. It's gone. You have no means anymore to live out your desire to to punish someone. This doesn't mean that you don't confront someone. Confrontation is biblical. We'll get that in Matthew 18. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him. But the goal there is reconciliation. It's not punishment. We're to go to him in a way that shows a posture of forgiveness and a desire for peace. We'll get to that later when we get to Matthew 18. But for now, this is what needs to be clear for us. If you say, I have been forgiven by our Father on the basis of Christ's work for me, but I cannot forgive so-and-so because of what they said to me, friends, you are not walking in the forgiveness of the Father. You are walking in the bitter darkness of the world. If you say, I've been forgiven by our Father on the basis of Christ's work for me, but I can never forgive my dad for treating me the way that he did when I was growing up. Or I can never forgive my ex-husband for what he did. Or I can never forgive this or that church member for their sin against me. Friend, if that's your posture towards those who have sinned against you, Jesus is saying, you are not a forgiven person. If you refuse to forgive, you refuse to forgive, then it must not be true that you have humbly received the grace of God in Jesus Christ. These are strong words. What's he saying? Those who have received forgiveness in Christ necessarily take on the forgiving character of our forgiver. We put on Christ when we receive Christ. And that is as soft as I can make that passage. I'm not going to try and bend it. I I don't want to try and comfort you here. Because Jesus is not trying to comfort us with this. This is a warning, isn't it? Here's what it comes down to. You cannot have Jesus and a hard heart at the same time. You cannot live in Christ's kingdom and continue to rule over your own kingdom as judge at the same time. A true child of the Father does not withhold forgiveness. In our prayers, remember that's the context here, even in the midst of a hard word from our Savior, our prayers are to show that we have been affected. We have been transformed by the forgiveness that the Father has shown us. By including verse 12 in this model prayer and then explaining it in verses 14 and 15, Jesus is recognizing this is going to be difficult for us. He knows our hearts. In fact, He's going to have to come back to this teaching over and over again in Matthew's gospel. There's a lot more teaching on forgiveness. It's not expected to be easy. But when we pray, Father, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors, we're reminding ourselves of the truth that a forgiven people forgive others. And we belong to a forgiven people. We are to live so transformed 
by the forgiveness of our Father that we desire. It's, it's who we are. Now, we desire to forgive others. And not only that, but our transformation will include a desire to avoid sin. That's what we get in verse 13. You see why I call this transformation? This is Something happens when you become a child of the Father. Something happens when you go to the Father in prayer. Look what Jesus says in verse 13. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now we know from elsewhere in Scripture that God does not tempt us. Right? James 1.13 says, God cannot be tempted by evil. He, cannot, he does not himself tempt us. He doesn't tempt us, but he does test us. God does test us. He allows us to go through trials. He, he will allow us to go through pain, experience pain. He will allow us to feel hurt, but he will not tempt us. I think what Jesus is getting at here is that our prayer, as people who have been redeemed, as people who have been forgiven, our prayer is that when we are persecuted, when we're suffering, when our health fails, when work is scarce or hard, whatever the difficulty, Jesus is leading us to pray that we would be protected from temptation during those times. That we would, wouldn't give in to evil wherever it comes from, whether from our own hearts or from Satan himself. The prayer is that we would be able to withstand the pressure. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. He says, God is faithful. That's what our prayers to be. God, be faithful. God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. This prayer is recognizing that truth. Having been justified by Christ and forgiven by the Father, our prayers are asking our Father simply this, Father, hold on to me. We know we're vulnerable. Every one of us, if we truly are trusting in Christ, if we have been redeemed, we know we're vulnerable. We feel it. We know that we can fall. We know that we can trip, that we can stumble, that we will sin. But we also know this, that our Father can hold us up. And so we ask Him to. We depend on our Father to meet our physical needs. We saw that. And we depend on Him to meet our spiritual needs too. In the same way, asking for our daily bread is asking God to provide for us. Asking Him to keep us from evil is asking Him to protect us. Provide for me, Father. Protect me, Father. We're dependent on Him. It all comes back to who He is and who we are. He's our Father. We're His adopted sons and daughters. And we know we're vulnerable. We know that we're needy. And we know that we're helpless. We know that we require mercy every day. That we require grace upon grace upon grace just to continue the Christian life. So if you find prayer like this difficult, it may be this. You're, defend, you're depending far too much on your own strength and ability. If prayer is hard for you, listen, you're probably depending too much on yourself. It's no accident that in chapter 6, Jesus is going to move from talking about prayer and dependence on God 
to how we think about money. The entire second half of chapter 6 deals with this issue of being confident in ourselves. Jesus is saying here, put all of your hope, all of your confidence, all of your rest and assurance, all of your dependence on the Father and not yourself. For many of us, though, we can't pray the way Jesus is teaching us because we are simply too well off. We don't need to depend on him for our daily bread. We've got enough bread in the bank to last for years. And to add to that, we're pretty decent people. We're pretty righteous people. So we hardly feel the need to ask for forgiveness. And and our sense of justice, the way that we understand it sometimes, is so great and so perfected by what we understand righteousness to be that when we withhold forgiveness, we know we're in the right. Because we're righteous in ourselves. And we hope that God's kingdom will come, but we're not desperate for it because our kingdom is going pretty well. We've got things under control. To to really mean, sincerely mean the things that Jesus is teaching us to pray, we have got to have no confidence in ourselves. None at all. We have to be totally helpless, totally needy, little children of the Father. A shift has got to take place in our hearts from dependence on ourselves to dependence on the Father, or we can't pray this prayer. And for some of us, that just means simply abandoning the remnants of worldliness in our hearts and learning to live as a child of the Father. Right? Like, if we're adopted, like any adoption, a child has to learn to live in her new family. And some of us are still learning how to live in our new family, to to trust the Father who's adopted us. And we have orphan habits, self-reliance habits that we fall into. But we need to learn to abandon those habits so that we can live in the joy that dependence on the Father brings us. For some of us, though, we are yet to become children of the Father. Our adoption has not taken place yet. We aren't yet trusting in God as our redeemer, our provider, our sustainer. Some of you have identified in some ways as a Christian. Maybe it's culturally Christian, but maybe it it only marks your morality, how you understand right and wrong. Maybe your understanding of Christianity or your identification with Christianity just fits into social structures or how you vote might fit into your family maybe it fits into the family that you come from your parents you know you're confident your parents were adopted children of the father and so you're thinking maybe you'll be grandfathered in God doesn't have grandchildren just sons and daughters What Jesus wants us to see is that being a disciple of Christ means that at the very core of who you are, you're a child of the Father. The old you has died. You have been born again by the Spirit into Christ, into sonship. And as sons and daughters, we live every breath, every prayer in absolute, total dependence on the Father. 
We are helpless without him. You see how Jesus is communicating that in this prayer? Totally dependent on him. I want to go now into just a time of, uh, of silence for just a minute or so.